Hello, this is Steve Bailey. Happy to welcome you aboard for Episode 9 of Laughing Gas, a Charlie Chaplin podcast. I thought I would do something a little bit different uh, for this particular podcast rather than going in chronological order. I have a couple of Chaplin movies that, let's say, I need to get off my chest and I might as well go ahead and do so. Uh, I'm sorry to say that I don't revere absolutely everything that he did, although he was obviously a comic genius and a great filmmaker. Uh, there were moments that, if we're honest, it, were a little self-indulgent and, you know, just weren't to our taste or to mine anyway. William Goldman, who wrote the screenplay for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and other notable movies, once complained about the people who, the kind of Chaplin cultists who thought that every movie he ever did, even his lousy movies, were terrific. And he famously wrote, I wish those people a long life on a desert island with nothing but a print of a countess from Hong Kong to keep them company. Now, a countess from Hong Kong is not going to be, Hong Kong is not going to be one of those choices today. Although it's not a perfect movie, I still enjoy parts of it. So there are two that I think are highly overrated. And so I'm going to go ahead and get those out of the way on this podcast episode. The first one is his famous all-out serious movie, the 1923 drama, A Woman of Paris. Now, uh, Chaplin himself once made the famous comment uh, to one of his assistant directors. The assistant director was saying that it looked as though something looked a little too um, perfect, you know, for from one setup to the other, as though it was contrived. And Chaplin asked him, well, uh, does it seem convenient? And the assistant director replied, not particularly. And he said, well, that's fine. I don't mind coincidence. Life is coincidence, but I hate convenience. And that seems, that very comment seems to fit this very movie. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Watching a woman in Paris, you can, you just know you can read right into the minds of Chaplin's fellow movie makers and executive uh, executives at United Artists in 1923. They were probably thinking, we waited four years for you to get out of your other contract and give us a movie for UA. And this is it. A melodrama in which you don't star about a bunch of rich people in Paris that nobody can relate to? And make no mistake, for all of Chaplin's ideals about subtle acting, this is an all-stops-out melodrama. A nicely acted one, but still a melodrama. If you still have any doubts, listen to the musical score that Chaplin provided for the movie in 1970, and pay attention to the shrieking notes in the opening scenes with the fiancé and his mother. That's not to say the movie doesn't have its moments. In fact, if you can make it to the ending, Lydia Knott, as the mother, provides a, sol a subtly satisfying performance. Uh, 
And unlike Woody Allen in a similar mood, when he followed his Oscar-winning comedy Annie Hall by providing that same United artist with the laugh-free dirge interiors 55 years after Chaplin's mood swing, A Woman in Paris has some subtle humor to, to it, but you have to sit through an awful lot of guff to get to the good stuff. As has been noted several times, Chaplin intended the movie as a hopeful career maker for his longtime supporting actress, Edna Proviance. Here she plays Marie St. Clair, a young woman in love with a mama's boy named Jean, played by Carl Miller, or is it Jean French? I'm not sure. I hope I, uh, you forgive me for this. In any case, Jean definitely wants to marry her. Uh, for reasons richly unexplained, Marie is despised by both Jean's father and her own stepfather. The ostensible plotline is that the two sets of parents oppose the marriage, Romeo and Juliet style. Yet the credits make a point of identifying that opposing character as Marie's stepfather. Is Chaplin hitting in some sordid relationship between stepfather and stepdaughter that couldn't be blatantly spelled out in 1923? In any case, Marie is to purchase plane tickets to Paris, after which, a uh, train tickets, excuse me, to Paris, after which Jean will meet her at the train station <coughs> and they will elope to Paris to marry. But just as Jean is preparing to leave his home for good, his father dies of an apparent heart attack. Marie phones Jean, who vaguely tells her that something big has come up and he cannot meet her at the station. Conveniently, Jean is temporarily called away from the phone, and Marie is too furious to wait around and find out what has kept Jean from meeting with her. So it appears we have the 1923 version of what the late film critic Roger Ebert calls the idiot plot, in which the story could be resolved in two minutes if it weren't for some implausible glitch tossed into the script. Next thing we know, Marie is a fancy kept woman in Paris. Okay, where did that one come from? Maybe that smug stepfather was on to something. Anyway, Marie is now the mistress of a most unapologetic man around about town named Pierre, played by Adolphe Benjou in a performance that did make his career, and rightly so. Marie eventually but platonically reunites with Jean, more plot convenience, and most of the movie involves Marie's moral battle between banal true love and wallowing in all the dough in which Pierre keeps her. One of the movie's most famous moments is also its most telling about Marie. At one point, Pierre kneels Marie about how she loves the lifestyle to which he, he has accustomed her, and to prove his point, Pierre fondles the pearl necklace that Marie is wearing. In a fit, Marie tears the necklace off and throws it out the window. A few moments pass. Marie happens to look out the window and sees a street bum making off with the necklace. Marie gets so frantic about losing her symbol of wealth, she rushes out of her apartment and gets the necklace back from the tramp, as Pierre witnesses the whole thing and rightly laughs his head off. It's pretty hard to take Marie's battling conscience very seriously after that. There really are a lot of lovely moments in the movie, cinematically and story-wise, but Chaplin is so eager to impress with his impress us with his character's upper-class lifestyle that it's often a struggle to stick with the story. When a character, in an example, is when a character when a, in a restaurant eats uh, champagne truffles, Chaplin even goes so far as to provide an inner title explaining the origin and use of champagne truffles, for the benefit, one can only guess, of all of his spam-eating fans. It's rather ironic that Chaplin felt he had to go all the way to Paris to provide such a Tony scenario, since this battle of class versus crass feels very dated in the age of desperate housewives. Happily, Chaplin got this class struggle out of his system and returned to form with his next film, The Gold Rush. 
the other movie which I would put in Chaplin's Academy of the Overrated is 1947's Monsieur Verdoux. Am I the only one who thinks Monsieur Verdoux is overblown and overrated? When it was first released in 1947, there was no way it could be fairly judged critically. Chaplin's then reputation as a supposed philanderer and communist gave him and his movie no chance in the public court. Then the movie was re-released in 1964 and 1972 in a world that had had to suffer the scare of the bomb and the relentlessness of the Vietnam War was all too eager to embrace the movie's black comedy. Yet the primary problem with this movie, to me, is that everyone salutes its intentions rather than its execution. We are told that Verdoux, played of course by Chaplin, was a bank clerk who lost his job in the Great Depression. Then, in order to support his invalid wife and his young son, Verdoux began a double life, wooing and marrying rich women, murdering them, covering his tracks, and snatching their fortunes. And that's the problem. Throughout most of the movie, we are told everything rather than having it shown to us. The movie begins with a shot of Verdoux's tombstone, followed by Verdoux's off-screen voice hurriedly starting the narration of his story, as if Chaplin had such a whopper of a tale on his hands that he couldn't wait to get started. And for all the movie's ballyhooed black comedy, Chaplin doesn't even have the wit to use his beyond-the-grave narration as a gag, as director Billy Wilder would do with William Holden in the later movie Sunset Boulevard. Then we get a real Lulu of an exposition, a few loud minutes of the Cuvée family, whom we're told are vintners, but who bicker like a, the cast of a white trash reality TV show. It seems that a member of their family was taken in by Verdoux's winning ways, and why did she clean out her bank account and then suddenly disappear? The answer lies in Verdoux's outdoor incinerator, which annoys his female neighbors because the smoke won't allow them to hang out their laundry, but they're too charmed by Verdoux to complain. And there's Verdoux tending his garden, nearly stepping on a caterpillar, and then moving it to a safe place. Ah, uh, he cares for the life of a small creature, but not a human being. Such irony. And therein lies the other main problem with the movie. In a story where woman after woman is being knocked off, it's all about how Verdoux feels. Upon his first meeting with Madame Grosnay, played by Isabel Elson, Verdoux falls all over himself, literally, and her as well, trying to convince us what a mesmerizing lover he is, and it gets to be pretty embarrassing to watch. When Verdoux wants to try out a new poison, he picks up a lovely woman, played by Marilyn Nash, off the street, and at Verdoux's apartment they have an endlessly dreary philosophical conversation that nevertheless charms Verdoux so much that he decides not to poison her, the old softy. Nash, by the way, is beautiful but wooden, and the latter adjective applies to most of the cast. In fact, the only time the movie brightens up and is about something other than Verdoux and his wonderfulness is when Martha Ray blasts onto the screen. As Annabelle, Verdoux's erstwhile murder victim who never realizes how lucky she really is, Ray cuts through the movie's pretentiousness and gives it the black comedy liveliness it sought all along. Apparently, Ray was just as brash in real life, referring to Chaplin on the set as Chuck and miraculously getting away with it. Other than Martha Ray and a dryly humorous scene between Chaplin and William Frawley, four years before he attained TV immortality in I Love Lucy, the rest of the cast is as dull as dishwater. Finally, there is the movie's infamous wrap-up, in which Chaplin Verdoux scores points off nearly every nearby target. 
At his court sentencing, Verdugo gives an eye-rolling speech in which he compares his own killings with those of war and declares himself an amateur by comparison. But if he really believes he's an amateur, why bring up the point at all? Verdugo continues his smugness right to the end, trading barbs with a reporter, played by Herb Vigrand, later a, a very recognizable TV character actor, and even with the priest who has come to perform Verdugo's last rites. Chaplin presents Verdugo as completely sound and rational, even as he, as he has the last word over God. Over the years, <clears throat> many critics and moviegoers have criticized this movie for its antiquated cinematic vocabulary, the constant shot of train wheels to symbolize scene changes, and so on. None of that would matter if the story and the characters were more compelling. Even more than its follow-up limelight, Monsieur Verdoux is Chaplin at his most verbose and smugly superior, even when he's portraying a sociopathic murderer. So, now that I've gotten the venom out of the way, uh, let me go ahead and finish with my usual blatant personal plugs. You can find me, if you would like, on Facebook at a Facebook page named Another Charlie Chaplin Facebook Page. So look for me there. Also, if you would like to email me to let me know what you think about this podcast, uh, please do so. I love feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. And you can email me at laughinggaspodcast at outlook.com. Lastly, please let me plug a couple of other podcasts for which I am responsible. I recently completed a podcast series on the, all of the films of Laurel and Hardy. You can find that online at anchor.fm under the title Hard Boiled Eggs and Nuts, a Laurel and Hardy podcast. And I am in the midst of doing a podcast on the early Popeye cartoons, the black and white ones produced by the Fleischer Brothers. You can find that podcast also at anchor.fm under the title Blow Me Down, a Fleischer Popeye podcast. Uh, also, this podcast is available, among other venues, on iTunes. If that is where you are listening from, uh, please hit the subscribe button, and I hope you will also leave a written review and or a star rating. It really helps. Wherever you are listening from, I do hope you will hit the subscribe button. There are many more episodes to go, and I promise that all the rest of them will not be as bitter as this one. So I hope you have enjoyed this, uh, and until next time, this is Steve Bailey saying goodbye and God bless. <laughs>